0: scripture today comes from John 8, 1 through 11. As you turn to page 894 in your pew Bibles, uh, I'm going to read from the Old Testament, a corollary. Leviticus 20, verse 10 states, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And now, John 8. John 8. 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first until Jesus was left, with the women still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Um, <clears throat> if you've noticed, I've been trying to preach to the gospel of John in my little, um, in my particular responsibility areas, you know, each, each of us kind of has been doing that. And uh, I sincerely consider just skipping over John uh, 8, 1 through 11, or starting at verse 35 of John 7. <clears throat> it has nothing to do with the textual criticism that some have um, given to this particular passage if you look at the scripture that you're reading it has little brackets around the beginning and the end of it and it says the earliest manuscripts do not have this passage in it Um, although one of the six does but that's not really the reason I chose uh, or was thinking that I would just skip over it it's because I didn't want to cover the material Um, um And so there's no real justification for that in terms of its its, its, its integral uh, consistency, if you will. Um, And so I thought it was just a bit too personal and I just didn't want to cover it. But I was convicted. That is exactly why we preach through the Bible, so that we can get the whole counsel of God. It's called expository preaching rather than topical preaching, where you pick and choose your subjects. So by God's grace, we will see and understand the message that God has for us today. So let's pray. Almighty God, we, um, we, we look at this passage, and, and it's, uh, it's painful for us, Lord, for in many ways. Um, Lord, we pray that you would uh, touch our hearts and our minds so that we, we might um, know your will in our lives and that you, we might understand better your mercy toward us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your worst fear? You know, they used to come out with lists of people's greatest fears, one of them being public speaking that comes even before uh, um, the fear of death in many people's lives. Uh, uh, unfortunately for the individual in this passage who's, who is the primary focus, um, this scene blends both, both of those fears into one. The genuine possibility that she will be stoned to death and that the fact that this debacle is being conducted in the most public way possible. But there is a third fear that I don't even think that many people list when they ask the question about fears and that fear is that many, it's one that many people experience in their own lives, sometimes in their dreams and maybe you've had it, you know, um, Where you have dreamt that you are completely naked and exposed before everybody else that is completely clothed. Um, For some reason, we find ourselves as the only person that's exposed like that. This woman has her own sinful acts completely exposed for everyone to see. To make matters worse, she is being accused by the worst of men for the worst of reasons. How do we know that from this passage? Well, it states, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. We find out that they're not seeking justice, but were using this whole thing as a setup and a trap. So they trapped the woman to trap Jesus, for then it wasn't even about her. She was a tool to be used and discarded. She was a pawn and a game with life and death consequences. So how do we come to this conclusion? Well, we've already read from Leviticus 20, verse 10, which states that both the adulterous woman and the man were to be stoned. If they caught her in the act of adultery, then they also caught the adulterous man in this act as well. True justice would require both to be stoned and not just the woman, a fact that they most definitely would have known. Why was the man let go free and she retained? Was she a a prostitute, a harlot? The passage does not say. Nor does it tell us how exactly she was caught in the very act of adultery. But it does not take too much imagination to believe that this was a setup for her as well. That they planned to catch her in the act so they could conveniently bring her to Jesus. How else would they have such exact timing? We can see, uh, we call these uh, actions entrapment. The action of tricking someone into committing a crime in order to secure their prosecution. Jesus, in his model prayer, prays for God to lead us not into temptation. But the very nature of this story tends to give credence to the idea that these men deliberately led her into temptation to this moment so they could bring her to Jesus to entrap him as well. How evil is that? to help to lead someone into committing the most heinous of sins and then turn around and call for the death penalty, all so that you can have a reason to accuse Jesus, pretending to follow the law while only keeping part of it with no real intent for justice. These men were not only evil but brutal and so full of self-righteousness that they could not see the vileness of what they were doing. So here here she is, a woman likely broken and wayward before this event happened, in the midst of these hardened, self-righteous men exposed in her sinfulness, but also aware of the hypocrisy of her accusers, which would only pour salt into her very public wounds. And she was made to stand before the crowd, Being made to stand before the crowd implies that she probably cast herself upon the ground, prostrate and too ashamed to look at anyone, but they grabbed her gruffly and pulled her up and made her stand. But the trauma does not end with this public humiliation by cruel and vindictive men. Before her stands, the only good man she has ever seen the only righteous judge, the sinless Lamb of God. Whereas she might spit at her accusers, knowing them for the hypocrites that they truly were, she would have no answer for the man whose holiness and righteousness completely set him apart from them. Like the woman at the well, he could tell her every sin that she had ever committed And before him, she was absolutely guilty and deserving of death. So what does the righteous judge, the sinless Lamb of God, do? He stoops down and begins to write something in the sand with his finger. This is a powerful part of the message that John is bringing to us. But John does not say what he wrote nor why he wrote what does the writing in the sand mean? What is its significance? Alistair Begg proposes this, this idea that the spectacle is so pathetic that he did not want to look upon it. So he wrote in the stand, sand instead. One thing surely happens. Jesus slows them down. The attention leaves the woman and the focus becomes Jesus. Notice, too, Jesus writes in the sand. It's a temporal thing. Jesus does not carve on the temple, nor does he compose on the Talmud. He writes on the sand. Ironically, it's the only writing I am aware of that Jesus is recorded as doing in the Gospels. Everything Jesus said or did was recorded by somebody else. Scripture tells us that we need to be slow to speak. Certainly Jesus was following that principle. No doubt he was continually praying. And one passage comes to mind, Mark 13, 11, which states, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. How Jesus answers has many ramifications. Consider first that the Jews were looking for an opportunity to accuse him. This was a well-thought-out trap. To my mind, they thought there were only two possible responses for Jesus, and it was a lose-lose scenario. This won't be the last time that they try this trick. Why and how could they use this circumstance to track Jesus, you might ask? Well, we already know from Leviticus 20.10 that we are to stone adulterers. That's what it says in the Old Testament. If Jesus does not have her stoned, they can accuse him of breaking God's law. If he does, in fact, condemn the woman and she is stoned, then they can bring an accusation against Jesus saying, Roman law forbids carrying out capital execution. And they can run to the Romans and have him arrested for breaking Roman law. Two possibilities, breaking God's law or breaking Roman law. And both would entrap Jesus. They had laid the trap, and now they demand a response. What a spectacle. The accusers demanding an answer. The broken woman standing there. The crowd gathered around, we're sure, eager to see what will happen. And Jesus bowed down writing in the sand and then he straightened up and said to them if any one of you is without sin let him be the first to throw a stone at her and again he stood down and wrote on the ground he stooped down proverbs 16 1 states the preparation of the heart belong to man but the answer of the tongue is from the lord once again, we see the glory of the divine wisdom of Jesus shining forth. He has eluded their trap and placed the onus of the burden of the law on them. More than that, he has caused them to understand the profanity of their motives. They were not seeking God in this matter. They were more, like, more than likely culpable in the very sin they had, they had entrapped the lady with. More than that, they were forced to look within themselves to examine their own hearts. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Every one of them was sinful in their entrapment and the purposes they had for bringing this woman before Jesus at the very least. Maybe they recognized that or maybe they considered other adulterous acts or thoughts that they may have committed Her accusers left from the oldest to the youngest. No surprise there. The older men had a long lifetime of sinful acts that they had committed and the wisdom to recognize it. And the younger, more zealous, were more reluctant to leave. Youthful youthful people don't always recognize the nuances of their sin. More than that, they came face to face with the sinless Lamb of God. And maybe by God's mercy they felt the same way that Peter did when confronted with Christ's perfect holiness. And Peter blurted out, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. What happens next is amazing, as amazing as any miracle that Jesus performs. He can fix these self-righteous men of their own sin. What else does Jesus do? He convicts us today of our own sins either we are that self these self-righteous men or we are this lady caught in the act we know that jesus has set the bar far higher far higher than simply the physical a- act of adultery we know from matthew 5:27 through 29 it states you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but i say to you that everyone who looks At a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than should your whole body be thrown to hell. Jesus is looking down at the ground, writing in the sand, as we consider our own sinful thoughts. You know, a modern proverb comes to mind People living in glass houses should not cast stones. Until this morning, I exclusively thought about how easily fractured our glass houses would be when we threw threw rocks and the rocks were thrown back at us. But I never thought about the clarity of the glass. Then in a glass house, everyone can see what you are doing. Are we not all in glass houses? He who made the eye, does he not see? He who he made the ear, does he not hear? John 8 is not a lesson in theology. It's a message to each of us to evaluate our hearts. It is the first step in responding to the gospel to recognize that we are sinful. We don't need a savior unless We are in need of saving. And one by one, the accusers who are so intent on trapping Jesus begin to leave. The force of Jesus' words and the conviction of his sinless character were so overwhelming that they could not complete the evil that they had intended. And the Son of Man stoops and begins to write again, displaying a fruit of the Spirit called patience until there was no one left except the woman alone. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Mercy is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who is within one's power to punish or harm. Sometimes people have defined mercy as not getting something bad that you deserve. Jesus was the one person there who was without sin who could have picked up stones and stoned her, yet he did not. His righteousness before her unholiness might have caused her to fear him more than all of her accusers. And yet he does not do so. Why? Well, I believe the answer is found in Matthew 9:10 through 13, which clarifies things. It states, "As Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining" with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, not not to call the righteous, but sinners." Christ's first coming reveals the mercy of God. We know from the scripture it states, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is calling us all as sinners. This lady sins, the hypocritical Pharisees. Everyone is in need of God's mercy. Up to this point, it seems... We have focused on the brutality and injustice of these men who it seems would do anything to stop Jesus, including this evil act. Yet this woman was by no means innocent. She was committing adultery. Jesus does not declare, as he has elsewhere. Your sins are forgiven. He tells her that he does not condemn her. She was supposed to be executed, and now she has gotten a reprieve. Now this lady who has had the worst fears realized with the worst trauma that she could have ever possibly have imagined in her life is shown mercy. First by her accusers, but ultimately and so much more significantly by the son of God. There is something worse than public humiliation. There is something worse than death. It is getting the judgment that we deserve. What is more, Jesus does not condemn her. His final words are, go now and leave your life of sin. His command is for a life transformation. When we no longer live in fear of the condemnation that comes from our sins, God gives us the power to live and act differently. Romans 12, 1 states, Therefore or I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is healing in the transforming power of the gospel. Some people have the hardest time coming to grips with the reality that God does not hold our sins against us when we put our faith in Christ. That somehow what they've done is so reprehensible that God could never forgive that act, but he can and he does. Sometimes I believe that that we as Christians think that once we are saved that God cannot forgive us for the wicked things that we do after we are saved because we know better and we ought to be better if god can forgive the sinner who repents he can and does forgive the saint who repents of his sin as well we have all probably heard of the accusation that the church is full of hypocrites to which some of us in exasperation have thought well come and join us and we'll have one more hypocrite However, when you hear something over and over again, maybe it's time to take heart at what people are telling us. They're not telling us that they see us as hypocritical because we sin. They know we sin. They are tired of us sinning and pretending that we are okay. That everything is fine. And now that we are Christians, we have it all together. That is the hypocrisy that people are tired of seeing. That was the hypocrisy of the Jewish accusers that went home that day recognizing their own sin and culpability for the first time in a long time. Do we have an answer for the world? The answer is yes. But they won't find that answer in our own over-spiritualized, self-righteous lives. We must always point to Christ. We need to be honest and broken before the Lord. And when we are that way, God will use that vessel to accomplish his purposes. The final point that can be made from this text is that Jesus, in showing her mercy, says, go now and leave your life of sin. Hers was no singular act of treachery. It was an entire life of sin. You might get the impression that she was a prostitute for Jesus to describe her in this way. But stop and think for a moment. The scripture states, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whether or not she is a prostitute, she is no better off nor worse off than anyone else trying to enter God's righteousness on their own merit. Before we give our life to God, our entire life is a life of sin because we have not placed our faith in him and therefore cannot please him whatever we do. As the scripture has said, without faith it is impossible to please God. Do you also notice that the lady leaves and we do not know about her salvation? Nor does Jesus press her for a statement of faith. But the gospel does go forth, doesn't it? Jesus did not condemn her. Her freedom through Christ's mercy did more on this day to turn her from her life of sins than a thousand people saying, You're going to hell. In our hearts, we all know that we are the sinful woman caught in the act. How we will respond. To the mercy that Christ shows us each day, we are alive. Well, in John, 5, or John 1, 5 through 10, it states, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. There is a freedom when we have our sin exposed, even if it results in punishment. That freedom comes when we repent and are redeemed and brought back by Christ. All of us know of convicts who uh, become Christians in jail. They call those things jailhouse conversions. But many um, are sincere when they do that. Consider the story of Chuck Colson. Um, Many of you know him as being the hatchet man for Nixon during the Watergate um, time. Consider his um, uh, story of his mercy and grace. It says, as a new Christian, Chuck Colson voluntarily pled guilty to obstruction of justice in 1974 and served seven months in Alabama's Maxwell Prison for his part in the Watergate scandal. In his best-selling memoir, Born Again, Chuck wrote, I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. Colson emerged from prison with a new mission, mobilizing the Christian church to minister to prisoners. In 1976, he founded Prison Fellowship, which is now the nation's largest Christian nonprofit serving prisoners, former prisoners and their families, and is a leading advocate for criminal justice reform. In recognition of his work among prisoners, Colson received the prestigious Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion in 1993. Chuck Colson passed away April 21 of 2012. His legacy continues, however, in the work of prison fellowship and the lives of many people his ministry has touched. You know, in view of God's mercy, each of us must become the living sacrifice that God calls us to be. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, we see in these these self-righteous Pharisees, we see in this adulterous woman, we see in the man that somehow was left out of prosecution, our own selves, our own lives. Uh, we are not free of these sins that, that condemn us, Lord. But we thank, we're thankful that in Jesus Christ you have shown mercy. Now you desire mercy and not sacrifice or we would give it. Lord help us to recognize that mercy in our lives and to help it to us to transform our lives so we might live as living sacrifices for you. We ask this in Jesus name.